This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Hooten Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co-hosts, Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Carty, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the host will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer. Hello, friends. How are you guys? Doing great. <laughs> Doing great, Jessica. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. I'm. My next book is coming out in 2023, and so it made me start thinking about the fact that I had a book come out in 2022, as yes. you guys did as well. <laughs> And all of our books, of course, had very similar ideas. Can I ask you what the craziest or maybe the best or the most uh, hopeful responses to your books have been so far? Uh, Hopeful. So similar to um, your book, Jessica, but actually um, you you get into uh, multiple texts through your chapters. I kind of did one text per chapter that I was examining. The most hopeful and encouraging response to my book has been a surprising number of people that have told me they have read each of the primary texts that I engage with. So they've read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison and then read my chapter or read my chapter first and then read the novel. But a fair amount of people have told me like, this is what they've done or this is what they're doing. And obviously that was my hope that that would happen, but I, I didn't write the book expecting or requiring readers to do that. So my my hope in uh, the image of God and people has been reaffirmed um, <laughs> and their intellectual curiosity just to hear how many people have done that sort of extra work to really engage with the text. That's been really encouraging. Yeah, actually, the same thing has happened with mine. Like my book has become this kind of syllabus for people that they started reading the books that I'm talking about in the chapters. And as someone who has been a professor for over 15 years, I know what usually requiring a book list does. It doesn't make anyone read the books, right? You still have to go through the process of being like, come on, these are amazing. You're going to love it. And instead, you know, we publish a book and everyone's like, oh, a syllabus that I get to choose and I want this and I'm going to read That's these right. books. <laughs> Don't require it. People will do it, require it, and uh, they'll reject it. There there may be something about the heart reacting to the law <laughs> in there, but there's no pastors on this call, so we won't say anything. <laughs> we won't read human nature and everything. <laughs> What about you, Austin? That's so good. And I'm basically going to steal both of your responses because those are such great answers and they ring so true for me too. Um, I mean, what Claude said in terms of just uh, hopeful responses, I've been really pleased with and heartened by the number of pastors that have somehow found the book and reached out to say, this gives language to something I've been looking for for as an explanation to my membership uh, for some time. Pastors who feel that reading is a kind of integral, central central part of uh, their ministry, but feel like it's um, somehow a dereliction of duty to be reading on the job, so to speak. You know, my, my introduction is called Permission to Read Freely. And uh, one of the things that's been hopeful has been to hear from some pastors that felt like the book gave them some language for and some permission to read as a minister, which it's uh, it's kind of criminal that we feel we need that that permission, but but I think we do. Uh, but then surprising has been the folks that have reached out to let me know that they've gone on to read books that I cited throughout the book. So unlike y'all's book, which is engaging directly with specific texts, 
and brilliantly, I might add. If there's anybody listening to this podcast that has not read either Claude's or Jessica's books, go read them immediately. Uh, mine kind of cites books along the way for my larger argument. It's not really engaging directly with, with any book. So it came as a really pleasant surprise to me uh, that along the way in my book, things that I'd said about what certain books had meant to me inspired some folks to go pick up those those books. So uh, that's been neat because anytime you kind of make the connection as readers over a book that's really meant something to both of you, uh, I think that really begins a, uh, a deeper relationship uh, in that kind of reading friendship. I wasn't surprised that people wanted more of a book list. I do hear that often when I travel. People always want to know, you know, I have a 12-year-old who wants to read. What should they be reading? Or um, my kid is in an all-white school and we're Hispanic. And like, what do we read in this environment? Like I've had to actually like create and cultivate lists for people. They're always like, how do I read for my family, for my age, for my time? Like they always want to know, you know, what to read next. What I found surprising is like, how many people within the Christian circles and I'm writing on these Christian books had never heard of the books that I was recommending because I, I just assumed, I think I assumed my audience, like these were kind of like the, the pulp favorites, you know, this wouldn't be like, you know, I'm 75 years old and I, I've run out of great books to read. I've read everything or something and, and I've hit all the, the books on my list, but like, I just thought the church, like these are the books that the church always talks about. And I was surprised that like no one had heard of them. They're like, did you intentionally pick books no one had heard of? Mm. Well, what I love about that, Jessica, though, is it shows how important the work you're doing is because as they come to your book, you are then inspiring them to go and read some of these things that we take for granted that other people are reading. But it's not nothing that they're then reading your book. You know, this is a book by an academic for the church at large. But it's not like going and picking off the shelf uh, just some work of breezy fiction. It's uh, There's something in there that expresses, I think, a hunger and a desire. And your book's then giving them uh, kind of the tools and also the the reading list to, to move forward. And I, I, I certainly feel the same way about your book too, Claude. Yeah, Claude, did you have any surprising responses to your book? I think that that was that was the one that surprised me the most, just because the level of work involved, right? And it, you know, it's one thing to, I mean, we, we I'm sure we'll talk about this um, in some of our different kind of um, Q and A sort of sessions, but a lot of folks don't don't really read that much, you know. So just for people to pick up a book in the midst of everything that they have going on and to read it is one thing, but then to read that book and then say, "I'm going to read all the stuff that this book talks about," it you know is a, is is a real commitment. So I think that alone surprised me the most. I guess I've also been surprised by the age range of readers that that I've interacted with coming to my book. I think uh, a lot more um, elderly folks uh, have read my book and have found it really from helpful. And I think it's people that knew some of the works that I've talked about, maybe read them in college, maybe read like Ellison in college or Richard Wright in college, but are now haven't revisited those texts since then and are now sort of seeing them in light of, you know, the same issues presented in contemporary time and, you know, with my chapters guiding them. So I, I've been surprised to kind of, and I don't, it's, it's anecdotal and maybe it's just kind of locally, but to see that sort of readership represented in, in response to the book, I, I've been surprised by that in, in a good way. I think those are conversations I would be fascinated to hear is like you talking to some of your readers about their responses to those books. Yeah, I'd love to hear that too. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've 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 had emails come in and and sort of uh, you know positive and encouraging, just sort of outlining. I just read this chapter. This is where it challenged me. This is what I've learned. These are new, you know, and and the, so uh, so just the way people have engaged with the text has been has been really encouraging. And I think the people that have read it and don't like it uh, ha- have not mustered the energy to to message me, which is totally acceptable. <laughs> like, don't don't be inspired now to message. No, use your energy elsewhere. You know, you don't don't worry. Just find find something else you want to do. It's, it'll be better for all of us. I've I've been a little surprised um, by folks that are not uh, ministers or any sort of uh, professional ministry context who have somehow found my book and have reached out about it. I'm grateful for and and thrilled by it, but a bit surprised because even though it, it's kind of pitched for, for anybody in, in, in in a larger sense, it's a book for ministers. Um, in terms of its practical application. And so that's been a, a pleasant uh, and heartening surprise that there have been some folks just completely outside the context of ministry that are just book lovers um, yeah. that somehow found the book and, and have reached out. That's That's been nice. Well, you're Protestant. You believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? That, so absolutely. There you go. That's right. It's supposed to be a really large audience for a pastor's bookshelf. That's right. That's <laughs> right. We, we all kind of have that role. <laughs> Well, this is fantastic. I, I love hearing about people's responses to books because I think it's it's not helpful to read Amazon reviews. It's not helpful to read Goodreads reviews. Uh, Flannery O'Connor used to say, you know, when your book is written, then leave it in God's hands, like let it go out into the world. So I appreciate the personal notes and like when I get to hear people's responses, you know, in person or face to face, because if I'm going to read like some anonymous review, it's usually gonna be bad for my soul, even if it's like laudatory or if it's hopefully not defamatory, but um, if it's something negative or positive, it's probably still not great for you. But when you get those personal responses to your work, then it's like, okay, I feel like I had a real conversation with another person and it made, made writing the book matter. I think that's really well put. I think all of us submitted these books prayerfully and hopefully for what it could do for the life of the church. And then hopefully we're then all able to rest content that then God's spirit will cause it to, to go where it needs to go and find the hands of those uh, that that it needs to find. Um, and then anybody that then takes the time to reach out and give us affirmation that, that, that it was meaningful, that's just, in my mind, you know, a, a cherry on top. The gift was getting to write it and, and, and getting to send it out. That's a good word, and that's a great way to wrap up this conversation. And now we're going to turn to a really great interview. This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just by Claude Atjo. This book was named a Christianity Today Award finalist. In the book, Acho demonstrates how Black experience, as shown in the great literature of African-American writers, can guide us all towards sharper theological thinking and more faithful living. Get 30% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate programs. 
Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Usually I invite guests on who are contemporary Christian writers and we get to have conversations about literature. Today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to actually talk to a person who writes literature. So we're going to talk to a poet about a book that is nonfiction, but is very meaningful and I think has its own aesthetic merit. Maybe it should classify as Bell's Lettres. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. So I've invited, do you go by Reverend? You can just call me Reverend. Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I've invited the poet Reverend Drew Jackson, Drew, to come on and discuss this work with us today. So I'm going to allow Drew first to start off and just introduce yourself to listeners. Yeah, Jessica, thanks for having me on. It's uh, so good uh, to be here on the podcast. So yeah, my name is Drew uh, Jackson. I live here in New York City in Lower Manhattan with my family, uh, my wife, Janae, and we have twin daughters, Zora and Sahila. And uh, we I moved here about five, uh, just over five years ago and planted a church in the East Village neighborhood, um, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And um, yeah, I, I'm a poet. And have been, you know, writing for for a few years now, but poetry has been in my blood for a long time. Uh, really, first started with a love of of hip hop, and then has uh, just grown and changed and morphed over time. But uh, yeah, so I passed her, but I'm actually transitioning out of that uh, right now, and we'll see what God has next. But um, yeah, and really stepping more into writing and poetry and uh, this world of art. Yeah. I, can you tell us two of the books, right, you have with IVP? Yeah. So the first one is called God Speaks Through Wombs, um, Poems on God's Unexpected Coming. And the second one is called Touch the Earth, Poems on the Way. And uh, Touch the Earth comes out next month, so January 10th. And both of them are, it, I kind of consider them one project, but they're uh, written in reflection on the the Gospel of Luke, and uh, so it's not they're they're not meant to be like a straight up commentary or anything, but it's it's really just my bringing my full self and interacting with the text and seeing how poetry would uh, rise out of uh, a contemporary reading of the Gospels. Wow, yeah. wow, that's beautiful. You know, George Steiner says that the best response to art is art. Mm-hmm. And so I love getting to hear that. I was thinking about, um, I have a friend who writes poetry and he says, uh, it's James Matthew Wilson. I don't know if you know him as a poet, but um, he says that there's always one more poem than what the poet has written because the collection of the poet's work ends up being a great poem. Mm, Yeah, I love that. So I'll look forward to the January 10th so I can kind of put your works in conversation with each other even Mm -hmm. and see the full poem. Yeah. That's awesome. So tell us about Howard Thurman. You know, here's another person who probably the collection of his work gives us an additional work, right? And and probably also in connection with his life. Do you mind just setting up for listeners? Who who was the man? Who was the writer? Why did you want to talk about him today? Yeah, Howard Thurman has been such a big influence, uh, a, you know, a teacher from, you know, years past for me. Um, And I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Thurman is he has, I mean, I think in ways that I don't really uh, even fully kind of understand, he shows up in my work. 
And um, his his book that we're going to be talking about today, Jesus and the Disinherited, has been so impactful for me. You know, um, I was introduced to Thurman when I was in college and, um, you know, I was just kind of wrestling through a lot on my own of, you know, faith and what it means to to be a follower of Jesus who takes justice seriously um, and and understands what it looks like to to marry that with a deep inner life. And I think Thurman is one of the people that I that I've seen throughout history that has just done that so beautifully and so profoundly. And um, when you hear that Howard Thurman and his book, Jesus and the Disinherited is, you know, the, you know, legend has it that that's the book that Dr. King would carry around with him, that that those who were on the front lines of the, the civil rights movement, they would, you know, retreat to, to Howard Thurman, you know, mm-hmm. to be filled up and energized for the work. Um, you realize how important the work of Howard Thurman is. And so um, I think he's someone that is just vital for so many of us, whether we're, you know, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, I think Thurman's work is just deeply profound. And, but especially for, for the church, I think um, there's so much there that the church hasn't mined of, yeah. of, of Thur- Thurman's genius. Yeah. I, I think the legend story is that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say like, this was more important to pack than clean underwear. Like yeah. he was, <laughs> this is like, this is the thing he had to have um, everywhere he went. There's a, a, a poem that Thurman wrote that he said summarized the book. Have you heard this? No, uh, no. Which one is that? The um, the incarnation of words. I think is it is what it's called. Mm. And it says, I'm just going to read it. It's very short, but it, it I think it's a good segue kind of into this book because it did seem like Thurman rewrote this book several times in his life. Right? Mm. He wrote it first as an article. And then he elaborated on the ideas. He wrote this prose poem about it. So he just kept hitting a lot of these ideas and retelling this story so that people wouldn't miss what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And this poem, I think, is a good introduction. He says, the word was love. Hate is the last great fortress of the weak. Thou must not make division. Thy mind, heart, soul, and strength must ever search to find the way by which the road to all men's need of thee must go. This is the highway of the Lord. Mm. So when we look at Jesus and the disinherited, he's really writing about kind of this, these alternatives, these ways of responding, the way of responding, right? He's really hitting on like Jesus as the way of responding, um, casting hate, fear, deception in one hand and love Mm -hmm. on the other side. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm So, with this audience, he seems he's writing particularly to those with their backs against the wall, right? This is yeah. the disinherited he talks about in the title, the dispossessed. Mm-hmm. Do you mind explaining more about what he means? Those with their backs against the wall. Yeah. Um, so when he when when Thurman uses that phrase, I mean, I think first and foremost, he's he's writing from his own experience of being a black man growing up in in America and Jim Crow, the era of Jim Crow, um, out of the, with his, you know, his own family with the legacy of being enslaved. And he's, he's writing out of that, um, and asking the question, what does Jesus, what does the gospel have to say with those who have been on the, uh, one of the phrases I use in, in my first book is the underside of history, right? That, Mm -hmm. um, 
those who have been crushed underfoot, backs against the wall, or, or as Jesus would say, the least of these, right? It's the, that same um, sort of thing. And so, uh, yeah, I, I love what Thurman's doing in that he's he's centering those whose backs are against the wall in his work. And, and so not just writing about them, but he's writing to them. Yeah. 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 Do, you, do you think there's a way too in the, the title, just Jesus and the disinherited? I think too often we kind of lump Jesus with things that he doesn't belong with. Yeah. So we often, it's like, you know, I love Jesus and coffee <laughs> or, you know, like <laughs> you have, you have that like misalignment, but yeah. here it seems like what Jesus, like what Thurman is doing is saying Jesus and the disinherited as though they share commonality. Yes. Is that what he's doing? Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, I think he's making the argument um, that that Jesus doesn't stand outside of the disinherited looking in, but Jesus is is them, is among them. Um, that, you know, the incarnation of God in Jesus is, you know, to 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 put on the flesh of a poor, brown skinned, Palestinian, dispossessed, disinherited human being. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is just so, in my opinion, it's so central to understanding the the Jesus story and the where the gospel is coming from, the proclamation. Like, you got to get that. Yeah, yeah. So why why do you think this was so revolutionary in 1940? And it's still revolutionary now, right, in the 21st mm-hmm. century to imagine Jesus in this way in which his first century Palestinian identity mm-hmm. was more closely aligned with African-Americans in the 1940s than people were recognizing. Why, why was Thurman having to like show this? Yeah. Because Jesus throughout history has always been co-opted by the powerful. Yeah. Always. I mean, you know, you see the, the, the early roots of that with Constantine and, and the Roman empire and just the sort of the, the making of Jesus and, and Christianity, the religion of the empire. And so, um, that has been a, a a temptation of the church throughout history is to align itself with the powerful and and for the powerful to co-opt the story of Jesus for their own ends. And so I think what G, what, what uh, Thurman is doing is is really saying no. Like when we take an honest mm-hmm. look at mm-hmm. who Jesus is um, in his first century context, as growing up in you know. Nazareth, that that town that nothing good can come out of, you know, Mm -hmm. so they say um, you have to understand Jesus inside of that context as someone who who proclaimed this good news and did his work um, underneath of Roman occupation and oppression. Yeah. Um, And that that actually matters for how we understand um, the proclamation of salvation and even what it is. Right. Um, Luke four doesn't it, it, it? It's watered down if we don't understand it inside of that context. When Jesus speaking from his hometown among his family, among his neighbors, mm-hmm. says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, yes. bring recovery of sight to the blind, set the captives free. Right. Like who is this Jesus that is saying that? Right, right, yeah. absolutely. And then, what does that do to Rome? Then, because that's—I think—that's where it starts being really uncomfortable. Yeah. You listen to this, and you're like, "Yeah, absolutely, that's right." And then it's like, "Wait, so wait, how is he lining Rome up? Like, who's Rome in the 1940s or even now?" Analogy. Uh, America. 
Yeah, right? <laughs> yes. Scary. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's something that we don't want to see lined up. Like, we don't want to consider ourselves the Romans in that sense. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to see themselves as the big bad empire. Yes. Yes. You know? But how can the but how can the cross be redemptive unless you can see yourself? Yeah. As part of the problem. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, James Cone builds on the work of Howard Thurman and, you know, yeah. and his 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 work the cross and the lynching tree, you know, mm-hmm. where he he talks about how the, with the crucifixion of Jesus, like, how do you not see the obvious echoes, you know, of, you know, of the crucifixion in the, the lynch bodies of African-Americans um, in American history, swinging from trees, yeah. you know, um, and, and just that there's, there, there's something there that the church needs to see and reckon with. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. So what are, what are the alternatives that, that Thurman gives us, right? Because you can, you can start lining up this analogy. You can start seeing history this way. You can see your own position in society this way. And the different alternatives he gives us are what? What are the responses for people and how is he kind of outlining those? You know, you mean when he talks about uh, deception fear, and fear? Hate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just, I love what Thurman is doing in those uh, those chapters and how he really gets inside of each one of them. So to help the reader understand, like there's, when you talk about sort of the fear, the fear that is present within the the disinherited to understand like where that comes from, why that, what is he, he, he talks about fear and hatred as like the, the, you know, the hounds at the heels of the disinherited Right, um, that they're just always there, and um, like I can't help but think of you know even just the stories of my own my own upbringing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just growing up and talking to so I'm the youngest of four boys, and you know we would we would share stories. We've shared stories about our own interactions with like law enforcement, right, mm-hmm. and sort of the the fear that is just present, ever present. Like Thurman uses that language of the ever present fear. Um, and uh, it's a, it's almost this deep anxiety, right? Um, that I know that this has been a whole, a whole study around epigenetics, but how that has been passed down, mm-hmm. you know, even just in, in your own body, how you feel it in your own body. Um, and uh, yeah. And so like, I just love, one one that Thurman gets inside of that and even two with hatred, how he gets inside of that. And just this sort of understanding of like, you know, hatred for those who have been disinherited is one, like it's an understandable hatred. Mm-hmm. You know where that comes from. Um, and it's important to know where that comes from, but it's also important to know that uh, he says specifically, he talks about how the hatred how it's when it's you know being being that it has its root in bitterness, right? Mm-hmm. It what it ends up doing though, no matter where it does, because hatred can't sort of discriminate. It can't tell like you know that it's from th- coming from this thing or coming from that thing. It just hatred is, and mm-hmm. so what it ends up doing is uh, robbing whoever of creativity. You know the yeah. the ability to create something 
you know, more beautiful or more something more. Right. And so you sort of end up mired in the negativity of it. And so um, hate uh, Thurman is just sort of talking about the getting free from that, from the hatred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's so, that's so good. Well, and that the hatred and the fear, and then he talks about the deception, deception. Too, that all of those things end up enslaving yeah. people who now have found themselves free. Right. And yeah. so he, he, he's saying if, if there's going to be freedom, you can't yeah. have your responses to those other people, right? To the Romans, to the whites, to the yeah. Americans in power. You can't have your responses be dictated by them. Or once again, you're oppressed by, you're enslaved. Like you've yeah. chosen that. What, yeah. I mean, really what he's doing is he is inviting the the disinherited to, to reclaim their dignity. So to, good. To reclaim, you know, their humanity, personhood and say, no, like, no matter no matter what you've done to me, you will not rob me of these things. Yes. Which is yes. really it's it's exactly what Jesus was doing, right? Uh, this is this was the ministry of Jesus in so many mm-hmm. ways. You know, when we talk about um, even passages like when 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 Jesus talks about like turning the other cheek, right? That is a passage that throughout history has been sort of misunderstood and misinterpreted. But really, what it is is. Um, in so many ways, Jesus is is inviting those who are experiencing, um, you know, the oppression of Roman soldiers who would who would you know remind people of their place by giving them backhands, right? Like you stay in your place. When Jesus is saying no, turn the other cheek, he's saying no. You have to slap me with the other side of the mm-hmm. hand as well because you wouldn't you would only do that to someone who was your equal. Right. And so slapping someone with the backhand side was like subservient. You're underneath. I've never heard that. Yeah. And so there's this whole new sort of like, no, no, you actually I'm reclaiming my dignity in this moment. You're not just going to tell me I'm underneath of you. You have to slap me on the other side as well because we're equal. Right. And and so it like things like that. It's just when you understand some of like, and this is why it's important to understand who Jesus was Mm -hmm. in terms of the context that he's speaking out of, because, you know, yeah, we will miss that so easily, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's right there uh, if we can see it. And so um, I think Thurman's doing that in this, in this text in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Like the agency that he's giving people and Mm -hmm. telling them the possibilities. And I think even just outlining the alternatives the way he does I think there's just so many people, you know, from other writers I've read in the 1940s who thought there is no choice for how to respond. Yeah. Right? Like you're left in this kind of, like you said, there's this fear that's been passed down that's weighed on you. You don't feel like you have choices. So even Thurman just saying, here are the choices. Mm-hmm. Choices are fear, deception, hate, but then here's this other alternative I'm going to give you. And it's the one Jesus chose when he was oppressed by Palestinian, you know, mm-hmm. by the Jews in Palestine, mm-hmm. and he was even taken to the cross and here was his option. Mm-hmm. Right. And he said, love, the love of Jesus is only possible when you're free, right? Mm-hmm. It's only possible between two free spirits. Can, can you elaborate on what, what that means? Yeah. I mean, I think it is um, just what we've, what we've been talking about just in terms of, you know, freedom, freedom from the things that in, you know, both externally and internally keep us enslaved, right? Yeah. The, you know, the the, exter- the external forces of oppression and violence and all those things, but what they do to us internally. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, 
that love is love is only possible once those chains fall away, right? To to come toward another person, to truly seek the flourishing of another person Mm -hmm. um, for their sake, you know, for their good uh, Mm -hmm. is only possible, you know, once the bitterness falls away and what, you know, once the fear begins to subside. Right. And, um, but it's got a, but also on the other side of that too, right. He said between two free spirits. So it's not, it's not just that, like, you know, like, sure, in and of myself, those things can fall away and I can and begin to do the work of love. But there's something that happens when the other person, right, those who have been on the 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 end of doing the oppressing, right, mm-hmm. are able to get free, able to get free from a vision of the world that is about power and domination yes. and ownership, you know, lord, lording over um, superiority, like, and can begin to to see and be um, differently um, together with with human beings. Like we gotta, like love is only possible when those things begin to yeah. fall away um, between between two people, two parties. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I love looking at his example of his maternal grandmother, and he was talking about the internal, like the inner resources she had, where. Mm-hmm. Basically, you could do external evil all day long, but it didn't hurt her because of the strength of yeah. her inner resources, right? Yeah. There's, and and you know, Socrates says something similar actually. Right when, right before he's going to be executed by the Athenians, he's like, "There's, there's no evil you can do to me because evil is mm. something that's done from within that kind of corrodes the inner person." Yeah, right. And instead, it's only external things that are happening to you. I, I look at Thurman's life. My, so my encounter with Thurman. Um, I started reading this because I was trying to understand Zora Neale Hurston's mm. this man in the mountain. I was writing on it and I just kept being like, I am, I'm just missing something about this book. And so I just started reading a bunch of other things in connection. And I read this book and was like, Whoa, <laughs> like why yeah. I did not encounter this in college. Like yeah. I didn't get access to this. So then I started trying to share it with all the students that I knew. And I started reading Thurman's prayers. I wanted to publish Thurman's prayers in this student reader that I was putting together and, and the reason I'm telling the story is because what made such a difference in the same way that Thurman's maternal grandmother had had this legacy, this fruit that she continued bearing in him, he's had still. Thurman's grandson called me when I was going to use these prayers to publish them mm. and didn't say like, how much money are you going to give us? Or like, where are you printing this? He said, Who, how's your faith? Mm. Love Jesus. <laughs> I want to make sure whoever's doing this loves Jesus, wants to share this work for the right right reasons. It was amazing. That's incredible. Right? And he had me just like donate the money I would give for permissions to a church. Wow. So it just, to me, that kind of person, like this lived life that your fruit several generations later could still be passed on that way. And he even dedicates this book to the generations later, right? To his daughters and their future of their generations. I, I love that. I mean, that's so beautiful, and and I love that he called you. And yeah, that's that's so that's great. And yeah, I mean, it it resonates so deeply with me and my own story and my, you know, my mother who's passed away. It'll be ten years in March. Um, she she has such a deep impact on me. And, and, and when Howard Thurman talks about his grandmother and you know, like, mm-hmm. I, I relate to my mother in that way. Like mm-hmm. she was that, that 
that person who who just poured so so much into me and it and it's you know I'm still like I'm just seeing what the fruit of that is um and so you know and she she really introduced me to sort of the the deep well the the mystical elements of what it means you know to be to be her her favorite uh, passage of scripture was John 15 right abiding just a, the abiding life what does it look like to live that deeply rooted abiding life right um but one of the things that Thurman talks about, right, is he says the greatest, you know, the doom of the children is the greatest tragedy of the disinherited. And so I love that he dedicates this book to the generations that are coming, right? Because part of that is to say that, like, you know, you know, really, really to to part of taking up your personhood and part of, you know, uh, you know, really sort of as an act of resistance, Right is to to continue to hold on to hope for the generations that are coming beyond mm-hmm. you, right? Because part of what you know the, the tactics of the empire have been toward the disinherited have been to you know strip them of anything that could lead to continued hope for more in the future, wow. right? And so I just love that Thurman's like, no, like we, you know, I'm dedicating this to the children, and we'll let the the uh, this this tactic of sort of stripping hope from the children, you know, continue to have its way with us. And so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really beautiful. Well, and just going off what you're saying, the hope is rooted in the history that he reconnects us to. Yeah. Because, and this, you know, this happens whenever you have oppressed people, you try to only get them to focus on the present. Yeah. Um, in a negative way, like focus on your present suffering. Mm-hmm. Don't, you don't have a history to connect to. Therefore, you don't have a, a hope. There's no promise that's been given to you that's going to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And instead, by Thurman saying, okay, we're not going to let the whitewashed version of Jesus disconnect mm-hmm. us from the hope. If we relook at who Jesus actually was, he had his back against the wall. That's us. That's our hope. Yes. Is reconnecting to that history and, and cleansing it of the oppressor's version of that history. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's so oh, that's so cool. Well, when I when I teach this to students, one of the things I love doing is not only connecting them to the reimagined version of Jesus of Nazareth. I have this great uh, friend who does writes a lot of Bible studies, and she always tells students, if Jesus looks a lot like you, you haven't been reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I love that Thurman reconnects us with the Jesus of Nazareth, but I don't think I've noticed until I reread it before this this interview how much he actually does open us up to Christ the Messiah too, right? Yeah. To seeing ourselves in Christ the Messiah and and recognizing that we could be these, you know, icons, these incarnate icons of our Savior yeah. in the world now. Um, but I want to read this last passage and, and just hear what you have to say about the, the end of the book here. But he says, Jesus Christ belongs to no age, mm-hmm. no race, no creed. When men look into his face, they see etched the glory of their own possibilities and their hearts whisper, Thank you and thank God. Mm. Mm. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think when I hear that, and I, and you know, because Thurman does spend a lot of his time in the book talking about right the person of Jesus of Nazareth, um, but there's there's this other aspect, right? 
of of who Jesus is, this the, the Christ side of of Jesus. Yes. That as as Sermon says, there is you know no he belongs to no age, no time. There is this expansiveness, this cosmic. It's the cosmic Christ that he's talking about. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Um, cosmic cosmic Christ, and so. Um, I mean, I when I read Thurman, I mean, in, in all of his other works, he spends a lot of time talking about this in so many different ways, this this, this sort of universal cosmic nature of who Christ is, the bigness of it, and how, you know, um, this Christ Christ is all and is in all, as as Paul would say, right? And so, and part of the the freedom, right, uh, uh, getting free, the freedom to love is even the ability to begin to see the Christ in all. Like, how do you even develop the eyes to begin to see yeah. that, right? Um, this Christ that is, um, I heard the phrase, I believe the, the phrase, um, I, I, the first person I heard use this phrase was Father Richard Rohr. And he said, we live in a Christ-soaked world, right? And how do we begin to have eyes to see that in, mm. in our neighbors and all of creation, that it's all bursting forth with this Christness, right? And and how that, to see that is to change everything, right? Is to change everything. That's so good. That's so good. So as, as a writer yourself, I would just love to hear maybe as we close how Thurman's inspired you and if we can get you maybe to share your work before we, we close out here. This has just been a really inspiring conversation. Yeah, Um I mean, the other thing about Thurman is he was a poet himself, as you, you know, as you read at the beginning of our conversation. And so, I mean, like I said, Thurman's, Thurman shows up in my work in so many different ways, um, both the what we talked about today in the, the ways that he really kind of brings us back to understanding Jesus in that first century context and what it means that Jesus was among those who had their backs against the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the the cosmic element too, right? I, I I see myself as someone who writes at the intersections of justice and contemplation. And so those I really, like I said, I think Thurman embodies those things so so well. Um, but I would love to to share um some some poems with you that are really directly inspired by Thurman. Oh, um wow. and so yeah, this first one um, is, so this is from Touch the Earth, which is my latest book. And um, the the poem is called The Tragedy of the Disinherited. And right. and so it's, it's written in reflection on Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 43. This is when Jesus and uh, Peter, James, and John come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and they encounter... Um, a father whose son has been, you know, oppressed by by an unclean spirit and has been throwing himself into the fire, and so they're they're sort of coming off of this experience, and they're immediately hit with like the reality of life on the ground, right? Yeah. Um, and I start the poem with an an epigraph, which is a, a quote from from Howard Thurman, which is what I quoted earlier, which says, "The doom of the children is the greatest tragedy of the disinherited." Down in the valley, in the belly of this beast, Tamir can't run free. The emmets are threatened till their young bodies are seized by the demonic, squeezed out of the life that others enjoy. 
and we are left helpless in the face of the evil that is suffocating our sons. Wondering what else can be done, we begin to lose faith that any change can come. So we lift our eyes to the hills, questioning when and where our help will come from. So cool. I'm glad I got to hear you read it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. You, sound, you sound very much like a spoken word poet. It's awesome. Mm. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And um, I have one more too that uh, I, I would share with you. Um, and this is actually more in, we didn't talk about it a ton, but the in the chapter on deception, you know, mm. he talks about deception. And, and I mean, there's so much to unpack there. But um, this, this uh, poem is called Situation Ethics. And it's inspired by Luke chapter 16, verse one through nine. Um, it's it's a parable that is kind of hard to to understand because it, Jesus is seemingly sort of elevating as the hero someone who who engaged in this act of act of deception. It's so like, what do you is do this with the steward? Yeah. The, the, yeah, the bad steward. Okay, <laughs> right. What do you do with that? And so um, I, I start off with a, a quote from um, Professor Cheryl Sanders in her in her book Empowerment Ethics for Liberated People. And the quote says, Albert J. Rabiteau notes that lying and deceit, normally considered moral vices, were virtues to slaves in their dealings with whites. This radical reversal in moral reasoning was fueled by the basic conviction that the only morally appropriate response to the deception and depravity of slaveholders was to make every effort not to fulfill the ultimate objective of their efforts, that is, to produce hardworking, honest, and submissive slaves. Mm. Mm. So the poem is called Situation Ethics. When I sit long enough with my bones, I discover stories. Like a paleontologist, I use the fine-haired brush of my intuition to uncover things I never knew existed. In my lineage are ancestors who lived by a different set of ethics. With ankles and wrists pressed against the chains of enslavement, they made decisions that some today might call questionable. Question, who sets the standard of morality? God? Who's God? The one who sovereignly ordained these chains? Well then, back to these bones. Hmm. Booker T told a story about his mother waking him at midnight to eat a chicken secured from an unknown source. Of course, he meant the master. Mother could not fathom her children's mouths remaining empty while they feasted up at the big house on the food she had raised. We call God immutable, which usually means we refuse to change our view of God. Let every deception be in service of heaven. Whoa, whoa, what an end. <laughs> wow, wow, that's great. I love the opening so much mm. too. Right? When you sit in your bones, you mm. discover stories. Yeah. That's just that's phenomenal. Mm. I really love that. Thank you. Um, yeah. I don't I don't want to explicate it because there's too much there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to let it sit. That was so good. Uh, well, 
Thank you, Drew. I hope we get a chance to meet in person one day, but I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.